Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for their support of this show, The Cracked Podcast. And hey, they want to support you. It's 2020, a futuristic-sounding year. And if we're in the future, everyone should have a website, because that was already a thing to do in the present day, you know, back when it was 2019, a normal-sounding year. Now it's 2020, we all have flying cars. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, showcase your work, sell products of any kind, and just be you on the internet. Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to tell you about my Tom Cruisiest moment. That's right. Tom Cruise, the, uh, the famous actor and, and producer and uh, religious leader and stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, but I used to make a YouTube show uh, called Hilarious Helmet History, and we would dig into myths and misconceptions about huge historical things while I wore a fun helmet. One time we did an episode about the samurai of Japan, and uh, in other episodes of the show I'd have, you know, a pretty Halloween-y, plastic-y kind of Viking helmet or witch's hat or something. Uh, but this one, I was wearing a very substantial samurai helmet. Like, I could feel the heft of it and the weight of it, and, like, my neck felt very load-bearing uh, throughout the shoot, which was fine. I'm doing okay. And after we shot the episode, I, uh, you know, I went back to the producer and the crew and I said, hey, here's the helmet. Thanks for everything. That was great. And they said, no problem. By the way, you might be glad to know that Samurai Helmet was used on the 2003 Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. And I, I asked them, why did you bother to get something like that? And it turned out there was an entire helmet process to make that episode of the YouTube History Show happen. They tried several prop houses, and they sent somebody driving back and forth across L.A. to look at the helmets in various places. And then the one they could get and their favorite one turned out to be an actual Tom Cruise movie prop. I don't know if he wore it or it was worn by somebody he, you know, pretended to stab or something. We don't know whose head it was on. But that will just kind of happen as you're making a thing. And I don't think people watching the show got a sense of any of that or knew any of that, right? But the things you watch will have constant, amazing, very specific steps in the productions in order to make them happen. Uh, the labor there is not visible. It's also kind of wacky. And all of those qualities are the topic of today's episode. We are talking about major recent movies with insane production steps. One more time, that is major recent movies with insane production steps, because it turns out most Hollywood movies, with any sizable budget and, and effort at, you know, uh, top quality, they will spend pieces of that budget on things much stranger than the, uh, the helmet crew and team that I had for Hilarious Helmet History. It turns out one way being alive is more interesting than people think it is, is that most movies you see in theaters had several secret, laborious efforts by people sometime between the idea and the finished film where grown-ass adults did something crazy to make the movie happen. I love the stories in this episode. Uh, many of them involve kind of the end of post-production, especially the first few we'll talk about. Also, many of them involve the writing stage of movie making, so I'm extra thrilled to be joined by these two excellent comedy writers who are my guests today. 
Gonzalo Cordova is a comedian and comedy writer with credits including Tuca and Birdie, Undone, and the Academy Awards. Alan Denton is an animation writer, comedy writer, and so much more, including some very specific experiences that you will hear about on the episode uh, that made me think of him for this. And I thought of both of them for this show because they are both very fun, very funny people with actual Hollywood experience. So as we talk about today's actual Hollywood stories of doing really specific strange stuff to make a show happen, they're the people to do it. And I don't think you need any more setup than that. So please sit back or stand proudly beside Tom Cruise as you stare down uh, whoever whoever they were fighting in the film. I know it was set in the Meiji Restoration, but I don't really remember The Last Samurai well. I just know I had a piece of it on my head. And either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Gonzalo Cordova and Alan Denton. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. With all the stories we've got here, it's a lot of like behind the scenes stuff. I was curious just up top, like how you guys feel about knowing all the behind the scenes details of a movie before going in, you know, like, does that enrich your experience or do you feel like, you know, too much about what you're getting into? I want to know everything I can. I'm always trying to stay like one step ahead of the movie. I never want to get fully immersed, I guess. I'm always thinking like, how did they do that? But, <laughs> oh, that's a cut right there. Oh, they probably shot that on a different day. I don't know. I just, I try not to just be fully immersed in the movie. I try and stay this above the fray, know it all. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I've never heard something so <laughs> honest. <laughs> I like to feel better than the movie. <laughs> Screw you, little women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially little women. <laughs> For me, it really depends on the movie. Like, if it's clearly a clusterfuck, it's very fun to know a little bit. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, but, you know, like, for example, Little Women, I didn't even... I didn't need to read the book. I wanted to be completely immersed. I don't need to know who Louisa May Alcott is. <laughs> yeah, so it really depends. I like to be immersed sometimes, and sometimes I'm like, no, this thing is, is shitty. So I'm going to learn a new way of enjoying it. I like that. Like, I saw Knives Out recently, and I was like, I'm glad I didn't know much of anything going in. It was all just a surprise and, and all that. And then, on the other hand, we have one story here, and Gonzalo, you picked this one out, because it's uh, the epic film Cats. Ah, right. what a world we all went to. It was probably good to know as much as possible, <laughs> though, yeah. including which medications to take. In <laughs> I did take some medications. Great. Um, not, <laughs> not prescribed. <laughs> so you did, you did see Cats. I did go see it. The backstory behind Cats is that they obviously shot it and filmed it, even as insane as it, it is that they made this movie. They made the movie and it had a bunch of problems, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, some, <laughs> That's so diplomatic some, of yeah, you. Some, a, a lot of problems that were fixable by CGI and a lot of problems that were not. Amongst them were that when the film was released in theaters, some of the dancers in the background had hoodies on. Seriously? They forgot to add like, the digital fur. Judy Dench's hand has not been digitally furred, so it's her with her, her wedding ring in one scene, and then in the next shot or whatever, it's her hand is furry again. Yeah, we'll have a, a picture in the footnotes, and, yeah. and this episode is very audio and storytelling, but there are a few pictures that enhance things. Yeah, I did not see the parts that they had to fix later. The backstory is that they released it, had mistakes, and they were like, oh, whoopsie, 
And they went back and they fixed it with CGI and then told the theaters, you have to throw away your old print or your delete your digital print and do this one now. I saw the one that was fixed and uh, boy, howdy, was it. I, I could not have told you so, <laughs> that that was the fixed version. Yeah, so you watched and, and you felt, oh, this is the ideal form of this movie. This is the perfect version oh, yeah. of Cats. This is the director's cut of Cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Cats, I was reading up on it before when I was following the news like the way people follow the election. Uh, so actually, Cats has had two CGI overhauls. It's not just when it came out in theaters. When the trailer came out, people reacted and were like, this thing's insane. And then yeah. they went back and they changed things. And one of the funniest things to me about it is one of the changes they made, because it's like, oh, people are so freaked out by these cats, is they made James Corden's character, his mustache longer to make it more obvious that he's supposed to be comedic. And they're like, our job is done. (laughs) This movie's released. And then they still released it with way bigger mistakes than the length of his mustache. That's when you know you're killing it as a comic. (laughs) Well, maybe if we give him a bigger mustache, Mm. he'll be funny. Yeah. It's a weird thing, because some of the stuff that I found interesting about Cats was the stuff that you wouldn't think, like, you go in and you're like, oh, I'm going to be freaked out and repulsed and it's going to be really weird. And that's there. Like, the beginning of the movie, you're like, oh my God, this is so weird. And you're like a little bit like, your mouth is in shock. But then the parts that actually make you laugh are just things you did not expect going in. Like, uh, Rebel Wilson at one point unzips her skin to reveal her exact same skin but wearing a dancer's outfit <laughs> then starts eating cockroaches with human faces um what? I, yeah okay. yeah that's that's in the movie <laughs> uh, i can see this movie. Me, me and alan are just like that wasn't in the movie like you just had some weird i experience. saw 1917 yeah <laughs> um the best part by i haven't heard a lot of people talk about this part idris elba's in it a very hunky man playing a very yeah. silly character he has like magical powers. I didn't. I don't know why he has magical powers. <laughs> he has oh, magical yeah. powers because he's a McCavity, and then he's yeah. like vaporizing people. I didn't understand the movie. <laughs> I actually have no idea what happened. He like teleports or something with magic, and it becomes a poof of smoke. And as he does it, he yells the word meow. <laughs> not he does not go <laughs> meow. He yells meow, and he does it with that amount of energy, and it's amazing. <laughs> and it's very exciting that. Not only do they make all these conscious creative decisions, but then people who were super fans and did see it on opening night and did not and interrupted their lives to do this saw a movie with all kinds of crazy errors. And then there was a like a day one update of Cats. (laughs) Like it's a video game they're patching. And we've got Hollywood Reporter had the memo from uh, the studio to theaters. And it said that uh, Universal notified thousands of theaters they will be receiving an updated version of the movie with, quote, some improved visual effects. And they were told you can get it from a server on Sunday or we can get you a hard drive by Tuesday for this movie that opened on a Friday. And so then, <laughs> then you'll get the fixed and correct version <laughs> You know, whenever you get it, we'll figure it out. When I was in college once, I did not turn in a paper on time, and I tried to tell a teacher, hey, can I like just send you it, a bad version of it and then send you a better version a few days later, and it did not work. Uh, and it's amazing that it worked for a major motion picture. Yeah, yeah it, it feels like when like you're working on a document with people and the file mm-hmm. name becomes like something something underscore final, underscore final in all caps. You know? like yeah. That was a, a major motion picture they did that way. I, I got to wonder if the fixed, quote-unquote, fixed version is more valuable or the more of a clusterfuck version is more valuable. Because, like, what, why are you seeing cats Well, they both bombed. (laughs) Both versions of it bombed in the theater, so neither. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's true. They didn't get the updated one, and then the box office spikes <laughs> way up. Oh, like, I gotta see yeah, this. All these <laughs> amended reviews, just like, oh, never mind. It's great. It's I think perfect. They no more complaints. I think they should have sent another one that was worse. <laughs> just plain green screens. <laughs> but yeah, there's just, you know, tracker balls <laughs> pinned to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> We've got stories today that are from every end and middle of the end beginning of a production process and like this is very tail end stuff they were doing tail end yeah there we go (laughs) (laughs) and there's also uh there's another movie that is still on the way because they tried to do a bunch of updates early on sort of like you're talking about gonzalo with the trailer came out and people were like we gotta change it the uh, upcoming sonic movie is a movie where a trailer and a lot of images came out in the summer And then the studio said, nope, we're just changing the entire look of the character. It's all going to be redone. And so there's a whole new Sonic the Hedgehog on the way in the movie. That makes (laughs) I got a little mad. I got got mad at the Twitter people who made them fix it. Because when I saw the first trailer, I was like, oh, this looks like something I'll enjoy watching high at home. And now it just looks like a regular bad movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's it's like if they fixed Cats and actually made it mediocre instead of really bad. (laughs) Maybe it'll be good. I don't know. I don't want to slam a movie before it's out but when I saw the the weird human teeth I was like I think I might go see this <laughs> I had a unique relationship with this movie because I worked on the Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon Sonic yes. Boom which is a very fun show yeah. yeah oh thank you yeah and so immediately I I get my Twitter feed is flooded with this stuff and this guy and I'm just kind of looking at it going oh boy oh boy oh boy <laughs> I'm thinking for our show, we redesigned the characters. So on the one hand, I'm going like, well, you know, a lot of people had thoughts about our redesign, but hey, I think the show turned out okay. And on the other hand, I'm like, but this is a literal nightmare. So I, I kind of like was keeping quiet about it for a long time. You have to of... like keep it like yeah. professional. <laughs> right. In case you guys right. run in, into each other in the Sonic offices. Yeah. But I think, <laughs> I think they ultimately... everybody's running really fast down gonna... the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I had the most awkward interaction in the big loop. Oh boy. <laughs> I they pay ultimately... me in rings and I yeah. need to. <laughs> well, I think ultimately they made the right choice in going back and redesigning it because. I like to call him Rat Boy, the original design. He was just like this... like The original movie design. Yeah, the original yeah, movie yeah. design. He's just this horrifying, realistic, furred, blue rodent creature. Yeah. It didn't look like Sonic to me. It was sort of like, have you ever seen that, I, I guess I'd call it fan art, but it's like someone will try to make what a human's head would be if Homer Simpson was a little oh, yeah. human. And yeah. so they actually have that like weird domed <laughs> everything. Yeah. And it's really like uncanny that way. The, the original Sonic movie, it felt a little bit like that. Yeah. It feels like people are happier with the design and they did a good job. And I think it's funny that Cats tried to do that. And they, it's like if when they redesigned it after the trailer reaction, they just made Jim Carrey's mustache longer. <laughs> That's basically what Cats did. <laughs> and then there's also a side story where a firm called MPC Vancouver, which is behind effects for Life of Pi and the like, latest Lion King and a bunch of other movies with amazing computer-generated effects, they apparently had their staff working 17-hour days to like get the new Sonic together for the movie because oh, they need really? to get it out. And then the parent company of MPC Vancouver closed it and fired everyone after this process. Yeah. And you wouldn't know that watching the movie, but that's sort of a... I would. (laughs) (laughs) You, like, pull up a mask, like, because it was me! (laughs) 
that's another thing that I think just average movie fans don't think about these like enormous, again, video game style teams of of craftsmen and digital laborers putting together the, the shows, you know, whole thing. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, a that's sad a story. Years ago, before I made my living as a writer, I worked in like a visual effects company. And really? I, yeah, I, was, I didn't know that. Huh? Yeah, I was the database manager, and I eventually my job became the outsource manager, and I was like in charge of all the outsourced work. It was like outsourcing to artists in India and in Korea and Thailand and the Philippines and all over. Uh-huh. People that were probably making two bucks an hour or something. It's all a big mess. Yeah, but that's a that's just like going on with a lot of movies now. I I feel like it's just interesting to be in a time where for better or worse, movies are getting updated and patched at the very last minute, or even a couple days after it came out. There will be a hard drive with the finished movie later. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a, if you really pushed, if they would refund your money, if you if you said like, I saw the bad one. You knew you were delivering a new movie on Tuesday. Yeah, there could be a class action suit of, of, of very minor importance. The judges, you did this to yourself. <laughs> you knew about you the trailer. The, you have to pay more. <laughs> And then in terms of, I guess, the beginning of a movie process, we've also got a story here. And this is this is probably the oldest movie we'll talk about. But not that it's old, but Iron Man in 2008. And this is from a cracked article called 21 Behind the Scenes Avengers Facts You Never Knew by Adam Weirs. But it turns out that the, the first Iron Man movie, I had heard that there was some improv on the set and so on. But it turns out that there basically wasn't a script if Jeff Bridges is correct, uh, and if the other stories are correct. It was a it was a mostly improvised movie, sort of in the way that like an Apatow comedy would be or something. Yeah, like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. They have the yeah. outline. They know where the scenes are taking place. Right. But they don't really know what they're saying in those scenes. <laughs> <laughs> like we've got an Iron Man, and we'll figure it out. That was a lot of the production of Iron Man that launched or the whole Jeff Marvel thing. Or Bridges was not sober <laughs> and did not know <laughs> also what was entirely going on. Possible. Yeah. <laughs> that just... <laughs> seems baffling to me because those Marvel movies, this was the, that was the first Marvel Studio movie. Yeah. There was a lot of money and cachet and they were planning, they already had the Avengers plan, this 10, 15 movie plan, and they were just yeah. winging it? Well, we think so. Like this story here, and we've, we've got an amazing Jeff Bridges quote, but it, it leads me to believe that they have just retroactively told everyone they had an Avengers plan. This Jeff Bridges quote here is, They had no script, man. They had an outline. We would show up for big scenes every day and we wouldn't know what we were going to say. We would have to go into our trailer and work on this scene and call up writers on the phone saying, you got any ideas? (laughs) Meanwhile, the crew is tapping their foot on the stage waiting for us to come on. End quote. Jeff Bridges also called it a $200 million student film and said everybody was, quote, just fucking around make an Iron Man. That's great. Unbelievable. That was like... what. That's how they did it. Well, that and Dark Knight were like the two biggest movies that year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, 2008. Yeah, those were kind of the parallel things. So Dark Knight is this like extremely crafted, like, ah, the Joker will mean this and that. And then Iron Man, it's like, maybe he goes to a club. I don't know. (laughs) Figure it out. (laughs) It's a shame because uh, now I feel like my student films are even more disappointing. Because they didn't launch a cinematic universe. (laughs) (laughs) They just lost me like $8,000 or something. And Jeff Bridges was in them. (laughs) (laughs) Complaining the entire time. (laughs) It was like an $8,000 student film. (laughs) 
among other scenes that were just improvised is the ending of the movie where Robert Downey Jr. tells the group of reporters that he's Iron Man and spoils the surprise. <laughs> oh my God. And then just Wait, later, right. Kevin Feige said, yeah, that was very in character for Iron Man, so that was good. But they didn't plan it. They just kind of did it. So you know? the, the ending of the movie was going to be him just at the press conference going like, I don't know who Iron Man is. They had some kind of outline where it would be still a mystery in some way. And then Downey just tried telling him. And then they Wait, said, without that, he really good. literally does just give a normal press conference <laughs> where he comes out and he's like, I'm Tony Stark. And Tony yeah. Stark Industries, the stock is up, up, up. <laughs> End of movie. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the press, what was the idea for that scene otherwise? <laughs> the rest of the MCU is just like investment tips <laughs> and, and business mode. And then we've got two other Marvel stories, but one of them is, and this is just like a, a middle of production meeting you have to have apparently once you make a weird enough movie, but the Ant-Man movie in 2015, there's a fight at the end of Ant-Man where Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket are miniature and they're on top of a Thomas the Tank Engine toy. And so they're fighting on the toy and that's what's going on. And it turns out the production had to have an entire meeting with the owners of Thomas the Tank Engine's brand to like convince the brand that they would not make Thomas the Tank Engine evil or dangerous or any other things they didn't like for their brand in their Ant-Man movie. So there was a whole like meeting about the rights and the image of Thomas the Tank Engine <laughs> to make the movie. I like how they have to be like deferential to the Thomas the Tank Engine people. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, it, it's like a thing in this business. Anytime you have to license something, you're, you're just like, yeah, it'd be cool if maybe it's a Thomas toy or something. And then you have to talk to somebody who like their largest asset is Thomas the Tank Engine. That is the <laughs> driving force of their life. And they're, you know, and you have to go like, well, obviously, yes, Thomas the Tank Engine is very important. We would never <laughs> besmirch his identity by having him run over somebody he's only helpful yes. to out to ant-man the quote here from uh, director peyton reed is quote we had to do this whole thing where we did the presentation for the people who own the rights to thomas thank god they agreed and found it funny but there were definite stipulations for example nobody could be tied to the tracks and run over by thomas thomas couldn't be doing anything that could be perceived by children as evil thomas <laughs> and thomas had to stay neutral in the battle <laughs> Which was always our intention, end quote. So, so Neutrality, they, the greatest evil of all. <laughs> yeah. they, we would like to think of Thomas the Tank as Switzerland yeah. <laughs> during World War II, who turned their backs. <laughs> right. When there is a crisis, Thomas has no particular principles or morals. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. his character. And that's where we will hold the trial to Thomas the Tank. Yeah, but so to make that movie, they had to have a whole uh, song and dance with, and, and like you said, Alan, it's definitely a meeting about Thomas with the people who care more about Thomas than anyone in the entire world. <laughs> it's a really, you're probably calling them in an office full of Thomas merch and tokens and gear and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're like, yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine, you want to work with us because we're such a viable property, right? <laughs> you know, uh, I, yeah, that's why we wanted to put them in the movie. Yeah, I'm surprised they cut through at all, to be honest. Like, just... Hearing that, like, it's obvious that they're scared of it being seen as, like, a dangerous thing. But, like, the movie, it it, it feels like a kid playing with it would think, oh, I'm going to throw this at my friend to be, like, the you know what I mean? Like, oh, like they come out of the movie thinking, thinking Thomas it's like, is for, it's like for a weapon. Violence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could kind of see their point a little bit because it's supposed to be a cuddly. I mean, Thomas the Tank is terrifying. <laughs> it's not hard to make him look evil. But, yeah, it's like I could see why they were worried. But also, you know, it's such a silly thing. Yeah. 
Gonzalo, first you're opposed to sexual humanoid cats, and now you're opposed to a train with a face. Well, I think oh. it's just, I think Thomas the Tank, honestly, is not sexual enough. <laughs> and if I work there, that's the note I would have given yeah. the Ant-Man people. <laughs> he has to have a dong. Uh, <laughs> but he can't be evil. Then we've got another story here. It's the last Marvel one, but it's uh, the movie Captain Marvel. It just came out recently. And this is a, this is a kind of uh, crew task because, like, a, a lot of shoots and productions and things, the crew will have, like, a little specific strange things to do. And it turns out that in order to make Captain Marvel, which is a movie where it's a superhero who's famously with a cat, uh, they made it with actor Brie Larson, who it turns out is really allergic to cats, like heavily, extremely allergic to cats. And so Brie Larson and the cat playing Goose had to be separated at all times, whenever possible. <laughs> like the rock and Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. Right, she's allergic to drama, and so couldn't do it. They had some crew members constantly separating them, and then also if she ended up touching the cat, then crew would like kind of run in and, and scrub and, and disinfect her as best they could to prevent the allergic reaction. Just all the time, throughout the shoot. I guess I always assumed if you were really allergic to cats, there was like something you could do about it. Some sort of pills you could take or or treatments yeah. you could get. I'm guessing they didn't work for Brie Larson. We've got, and, and uh, this is linking to a USA Today story, but there's a story here where basically she uh, apparently takes allergy meds, quote, every day no matter what because I'm just like allergic to the planet for some reason, end quote. <laughs> so she's very allergic to everything. But in particular with this, like she would take a bunch of medication for, for allergies and just it couldn't handle the task of her cat allergy. It was just too strong. Yeah, that's good acting then when you have to act like you're affectionate towards this thing that you know is going to give you a rash five yeah. seconds after they call cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just love that there was probably a whole team and probably if I watched that entire credits that goes on for 15 minutes, I probably would have seen them listed that like just keeps the cat separated from the leading actor so they can shoot. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, amazing. When we've got uh, uh, other stuff from here, and Alan, you picked this one out because it's another story involving actual cats, not the movie Cats. Yeah. Uh, but it's from John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. Yeah. So a lot of cat stuff, by the way. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm realizing. Yeah. <laughs> so in John Wick 3, they had this sequence in Morocco. Where there's Keanu Reeves and Halle Berry. And they, there's like this scene, this incredible action sequence where they, they're just shooting down assassins in Morocco. And there's like 50 people that they shoot and stuff. And so the director, Chad Stileski, he scouted the, the location in the wintertime or something. They looked around. They went, oh, it's all right. And there were some stray cats hanging around. And they were like, oh, okay, so, you know, there's a few stray cats. We're, we're aware of that. And then they went back to actually film it, and there were, like, exponentially more cats on set than they had planned for. <laughs> I, I read this article. He says, we show up to shoot, and there were literally a thousand cats, okay? And cats have balls of steel. They're not afraid of anything. So they're trying to, <laughs> they're trying to like, shoot this very complex action sequence and, you know, and there's just, like, cats wandering everywhere. So then they have to, like, build these cat holding areas. But, like, <laughs> humanely, then they just, like, they're keeping cat food everywhere and cat traps going. And so he said in this article, he said, we had walls of cats, walls of fucking cats. The amount of fucking cat food. We were probably feeding more cats than people on set. And also, like, don't forget Halle Berry's character has two dogs that are like 
part of the action sequence where there's gunshots going and she's sicking the dogs on people and stuff. But, like, there's cats running around right behind the cameras as the dogs need to be doing very, very precise, choreographed, trained action sequences. So, you know, like, you need the dog to be really focused. And then, like, there's just, like, cats running around. So the director says, like, there's 10 cats walking around. You're going, oh, Jesus. And you got the studio in America going, why are you behind? And just get the dog to do it. And you're like, I don't speak dog. I watched the scene again after reading about that. I was just looking for a cat. I did not find a single cat in it. Yeah, you don't notice them or anything. Yeah. <laughs> they just completely erased them. Keanu Reeves goes and shoots someone and he's holding a cat instead of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> right, just in some shots, he's a cat in a suit. Like, is that there? Yeah. I, don't I mean, like, they could have had some cats in there. They didn't have to, like, cage every cat, I guess. You know, like, yeah, if a cat wandered in, it's, like, outside in Morocco. I think that's okay. But then the cat wants to be in the union. They want to get SAG points. I don't know how it works. But yeah, that's that's really amazing that they were just constantly wrangling cats. There's also uh, just other extremely specific jobs on a shoot uh, that people will need to deal with. This one's coming from Six Recent Movies with Bonkers Behind-the-Scenes Stories by J.M. McNabb. And it's from the movie Midsommar, where, uh, you know, oh, we've got this strange uh, uh, pagan group in, in Scandinavia. And they, there's one part of Midsummer where there's a rite called Atastupa, where two old people jump off a cliff to die. And then one of them lives and someone needs to come and smash their head. And that, that happens in this very uh, fun horror movie. But in order to do that, it turns out it's really, really hard to build a like dummy head that you just smash and fake blood comes out of it. And so they built an incredibly elaborate basically robotic head that they could smash in and then it would use pneumatic cylinders inside of it to reconstitute itself into a whole head again. And so they could just constantly implode it and re-expand it all of the time instead of having a bunch of just, you know, one-shot dummy heads. Which is such a bizarre thing to need to do. You wouldn't think of it at all. It's like one moment in the whole movie. So that's cheaper than just making a few duplicate head casts is make this whole self-writing pneumatic system yeah so apparently uh, in in this article they get into how in order to make one like dummy head that has some fluid in it and, and looks you know realistic and high movie quality it takes at least one artist about six weeks of work Oof. to build one of those heads at like the top hollywood quality and so instead they were like why don't we spend a few more weeks making a single robotic head that we can just constantly crush <laughs> and re-expand all the time uh, even though no one will know we did that at all. <laughs> I like how when you read about uh, trauma movies, how they would do it is they would just fill a watermelon full of like fake blood <laughs> and put a wig on it. That sounds so much better. <laughs> They're kicking themselves now. Yeah. Those oh, fools. we didn't know about a watermelon. <laughs> oh, but it takes like ten weeks to grow a watermelon <laughs> from a seed. <laughs> yeah, you know how long it takes one artist to grow a watermelon. <laughs> And so then they did, like, a whole bunch of work to build it. There's apparently a bunch of other machinery, like, hidden in a hole in the ground under it. And so we'll, we'll have pictures in the footnotes. It's a thing where you can see this head. It just implodes when hit, and then sort of re, uh, just all the parts come <sighs> back out like a Terminator back into the original shape. It's the terrifying. craziest thing. That could kind of be the movie. Yeah, it's that should have the been the movie. Head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Hello, Internet Enthusiast. I think, I think I can address you as that, right? Because you listen to podcasts. That means you have at least one device that accesses the Internet. Good for you. Keep it up. Well, you've probably noticed the Internet has many things, such as websites for many, many people. You should have your own website. Why just be a passive consumer of other people's websites when you can also be someone who's actively putting stuff out there? And you might think, hey, I don't want to have a website that looks, uh, you know, stupid or weird. Don't worry, Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Then you can customize those just about any way you want to with a couple of clicks, and then you have a beautiful website of your very own. Squarespace also has a powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online, analytics that help you grow your site in real time. Also, everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You might be listening to this show on a, a smartphone, you know, like, a, like an iPhone or an Android or one of those. You might have noticed that sometimes websites look crazy on those devices. <laughs> and don't worry, Squarespace sites are optimized for those devices right away because it's 2020. Every website should do that. Your Squarespace website will. Because Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked, offer code cracked. In terms of other stuff they've built and did, Gonzali picked out a few stories here from the movie Suspiria, oh, the, yeah. the 2018 version. I like Tilda Swinton a lot, and that's why I picked this, and she's a crazy person. And apparently in Suspiria, she, so she plays the evil ballet instructor, if you haven't seen the original or the new one. But she also plays two secret roles in it. And one is an old man named uh, uh, Dr. Joseph Klemper, who was in the credits. It says it's played by a man named uh, Lutz Ebersdorf. I think I got that right. But if you watch the movie, it's Tilda Swinton in old man makeup. <laughs> it's like pretty <laughs> obvious. You're like, that man doesn't look like an old man. It just looks like someone put old age makeup on somebody. And uh, it's definitely <laughs> Tilda Swinton, uh, <laughs> which I love so much. <laughs> because it's like, well, this will be really fun and a cool story to tell afterwards. But we'll also ruin the reality of this movie. <laughs> I, I do like that movie. But I, yeah, I remember watching it. And I didn't know about this story. When I watched it, I was just watching it, and the second that character pops up, I was like, "Oh, that's Tilda Swinton." <laughs> so yeah. there was there was no dramatic reason why this person needed to look vaguely they, like Tilda Swinton. Their reasoning, they've been asked this a lot, and one of the reasonings is that there's the artistic reasoning that the director Luca Guadino, I think, is his name. He says, "Well, the the in the movie, it it's really a movie about psychoanalogy, so uh, you know, it makes sense to have Tilda play a character that represents the id, the ego, the super ego, and uh. also it's a movie." about femininity so this character to have the only male lead to be played by a woman uh, really makes sense and then Tilda Swinton was like because it was sounded fun <laughs> like when they asked her <laughs> she literally says something like we could have not done it or we could have done it and it sounded more fun to do it <laughs> <laughs> which is why I think she, she's cool yeah she also was in Grand Budapest Hotel plays a very old woman too they did a lot of old age makeup I think she just likes doing yeah. that she did I think she just enjoys sitting in a chair for five hours <laughs> <laughs> and that's tricky maybe especially with actors like so much of acting it is work but also like a lot of the wilder things an actor can do to earnestly get ready for a role are also like 
funny you know yeah. like, it's like it's really hard to tell if tilda is truly like this is my process and it's how i figure it out or it's like and i thought it would be nuts to wear a tie <laughs> and, and, uh, a prosthetic and you know it's fun yeah i think she does it in her spare time <laughs> i think she puts on old man makeup how much makeup are we talking about are we talking a full body it's, it's actually it's, a pretty good yeah no she a had lot. a she had a, a a fake penis and balls made so that she could what? because she's like a method actress actor <laughs> yeah and she um she she on set would show up like that and would insist that people call her whatever this actress this fake actor that she created Lutz Ebersdorf they would they people would call her Lutz so she could, so she was methoding it, not as the character but as the as man the actor, as the actor who was what? playing yeah the and and technically <laughs> technically it's Professor Lutz Ebersdorf uh, yeah so also the guy had a made up uh, doctorate which is stolen valor I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> technically stolen valor but for professor so she was methoding <laughs> as a man who does not method act yeah exactly. yeah pretty much yeah. We should emphasize also that she did insist on having a prosthetic penis and a prosthetic set of balls yeah. uh, so, to wear while they, being yeah. this guy. Those, and, uh, those yeah, did not appear in the movie? I think they did. Oh, they did? I think the character's naked at one point. Oh. I might be misremembering this because I watched the movie yeah. in a movie theater a long time ago. But I don't know if that's the one she was wearing underneath because that's there's a difference between... Oh, between a screen, screen, use screen balls? Use, screen use balls. <laughs> one of them yeah. has to be glistening and perfect. <laughs> and the other one has to be functional and easy to wear. No, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> but I'm, I'm guess, I'm, I would assume that there might be a, a difference. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You can't just be in your comfy balls and show them. <laughs> you need to... <laughs> there's balls that are for you, and there's balls that are for guests. <laughs> yes. You take the plastic off those balls. Because <laughs> uh, the, the movie had a uh, makeup artist named Mark Coulier, who's, who's won Academy Awards before, and he said, quote, she had this nice weighty set of genitals so that she could feel it dangling between her <sighs> legs. And she managed to get it out on set on a couple of occasions. <laughs> okay, well, now that feels like harassment or something. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's something there. I guess everybody was comfortable with each other, but it was it was it a different a... time. <laughs> 2018. <yeah. laughs> Boy, you, you make Tilda Swinton a man for just a few hours, and she immediately becomes a creep. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that is actually good acting. Uh, that, that makes sense. <laughs> So they were trying to keep this ruse going after, as part of a promotion, which I actually think is smart promotion and creates, for a weird, very spooky, fantastical horror film, I think it makes sense to do something like this. So they created a fake IMDb page. At the premiere, she read a letter from this man being like, oh, I'm so sorry I couldn't make it, which, honestly... <laughs> it must have been hilarious. <laughs> it's like... If you're really trying to keep this ruse going, Tilda Swinton shouldn't have read the letter because it's obviously her. <laughs> you know what I mean? They should have. But right, my have favorite, to have the director read it or yeah. something. Or well, my yeah. favorite, my favorite part is the plan. Well, this is according to her, not the director. I don't think the director would have done this, but she was upset that it came out before the movie was finished. Like paparazzi shot photos of this old man uh, canoodling with her boyfriend, Tilda Swinton's boyfriend, and they're like, "Yeah, that's Tilda Swinton." <laughs> um, on, like on set photos, and they were upset because Tilda Swinton apparently wanted to have an in-memoriam at the end for the actor oh. <laughs> being like it's this is dedicated to this man who died <laughs> in the middle of the shoot yeah. i love the hubris of reading his statement at the premiere like clark kent going oh i'm sure superman <laughs> wherever he is knows how you feel yeah that's exactly what she did she clark kented it but you know i think i think there was a lot of uh winking acknowledgement at that point and they were just having fun with it and 
I think most of the whatever, like the the I'm guessing this is a European premiere. We're like, oh god, I, we hate Americans. <laughs> Wait, she's British, right? <laughs> but still, it was like it's a very silly. I think it has some sense of humor to it. They're just lying for fun. Yeah. Yep. There's another elaborate effort kind of thing going on here with uh, the movie First Man, which I really enjoyed. But it's it's the story of Neil Armstrong going to the moon and other things. And in order to create outer space and specifically the moon, they had to do really, really bizarre, laborious effort to make that happen. For one thing, they created a lunar surface by shooting at an outdoor quarry and it snowed the first day, and so oh. they just had to stop because it doesn't snow on the moon. Uh, everyone would that's, notice. That's what people think. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, breaking science news on the show. And then also, apparently, the light from the sun when you're on the moon is strange. It's not like on Earth because of the atmosphere and stuff. So in order to create that on film, they decided no existing light bulbs could do it. None of them are powerful enough. It doesn't work. And so they commissioned a whole new type of light bulb which was double the brightness of the previous maximum. They tried one and it exploded after an hour of filming. And so then they had a backup bulb and then they cooled it with giant fans to try to like keep it from blowing up because they didn't have other ones. And then they set it up 500 feet above the chute so it wouldn't be too close to people because it was dangerous. <laughs> and the crew still got sunburns from it because it was such an extremely powerful bulb that uh, simulated <laughs> sunlight in such a way. The one thing that you don't need to simulate in a movie about space is the radiation poisoning <laughs> that people get on the moon. No, we need to simulate the radiation that will kill everyone prematurely. Yeah, I guess the bizarre thing about it is, like, if I watch a movie on the moon, I don't notice that the lighting is inauthentic to... The actual I do, but when watching the actual moon footage, oh, the yeah. moon landing footage, yeah. <laughs> that's fake. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, they got that very expensive light bulb to appeal to two dozen people that would really yeah, probably notice. Just about, yeah. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. None of the viewers except like mm-hmm. Buzz Aldrin have been there. Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> That sequence is really good, though. It does look like the... I don't... I've never been to the moon, but it does look like the moon to me. Or a rock yeah, quarry yeah. in Utah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that movie looked amazing. And I think also they less people saw it than they hoped. So, like, it's mm. a lot of labor for a smaller audience than, than anticipated, probably. But they did a great job. It was yeah. really good. And there's also a lot of parts of the movie where, for instance, when the rocket is launching to go to the moon, you would think, okay, they must have just done effects or something to create that... But what they did is they wanted to use old NASA archival footage of the actual launches and put them in the movie. But the problem was it was on some kind of military-grade film stock that no existing technology could scan and, and like, put into a movie today. And so they had to search around old, like, houses of equipment at NASA to find some kind of old experimental scanner to transfer the film and then put it in the movie. Uh, So a lot of First Man is, like, actual old NASA footage with really elaborate special effects to make it work for the film. Which is a crazy amount of effort. For, you know, just a rocket launch. Well, yeah, because at first you would go like, oh, they want to use the real footage. That makes sense. That's probably cheaper and easier. And then it's neither of those things. Nope. Yeah. (laughs) Much harder. (laughs) And it has a watermark. (laughs) That's just property of NASA. (laughs) Yeah, there's a shutter stock on it. (laughs) But yeah, so all that's going on uh, just to make this like 
you know, movie about going to the moon and stuff. Then there's another story here, and this story is from a cracked article called Six 2019 Movies with Crazy Behind-the-Scenes Drama. So, so very recent movies. In 2019, there was a Child's Play remake. They did another Chucky movie, you know, new version of the original. But there's also a TV show coming, and long story short, it's because the original rights to sort of the Chucky stories and franchise were subdivided because of a massive Australian uh, financial crime. That's uh, that's why that happened. It's because there was a book by Don Mancini that got turned into the 1988 Child's Play movie. And then an Australian company called Quintex was going to buy the studio. And so the owner of this Australian company, Quintex, decided, I don't like horror movies very much. They're stupid. We're obviously never going to do anything with these Child's Play rights. And so he had them give away the rights to Universal to make a sequel to Child's Play. But then the sale fell through because Quintex was just horribly uh, corrupt and, and malfeasance and no actual money. And that led to a whole Australian like banking collapse and, and a real economic problem for that country. And meanwhile, Universal made sequels and the authors still own the original version. And so now there are two entire separate copyrights going on for Chucky because of Australian financial crime. He just gave them the rights for nothing? Yes. They didn't even have yeah. to buy it from him. He just said, eh, I don't want Chucky. Yeah, it was a guy named Christopher Scase, and he, he was buying a United Artists and MGM, and he told them, Chucky, I don't want it. And so you guys, Steven Spielberg wants to make a sequel at Universal. He can just go ahead. We don't need to charge him anything for it. What an idiot. I think yeah. he's smart, because when you get Chucky, you got to get rid of him immediately. That's what I've learned from the Chucky movies. <laughs> you don't want him in your house. <laughs> At first, he seems like a good idea. <laughs> it is truly weird that a corrupt businessman was also just giving away lucrative film rights. You would think he would be milking that. But I, I, do, I do believe my theory is correct. Like, I don't want that spooky doll. <laughs> That's all spooky. <laughs> And so now there's like this remake movie in 2019 is because MGM still had the copyright of the original movie. But then there's going to be a TV show based on the book and sequel movies owned by the author. And so these are completely separate productions and properties and, and have nothing to do with each other. And the, the author tweeted some like snarky stuff about the movie that's not his. And it's just a whole subdivided uh, like parallel Chucky universes. <laughs> the Chucky so, fan base is like very into following the mythology of that those movies too. Like, the, yeah. like the actual, they were a little bit like, this isn't my Chucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hashtag not my Chucky. <laughs> so, so the murder doll in this one is ruining my childhood. <laughs> well, he ruins a lot of childhoods. That's what he does. I don't know about you guys, but when I've come across like Hollywood dealings and business and stuff, I have often realized, oh hey, there are no rules. Right. Like there are some laws and some morals and stuff, but there are no like specific rules of, oh, until you get this degree or until you do this specific thing, then you can make a movie like just anybody can do it at any time, you know. And I think it leads to a lot of these stories because then just suddenly someone who decided to and has access to some money did it. That's it. Yeah, I think you're right. Alan, you picked out a story about fully the entire making of several movies, including The Wolf of Wall Street, Daddy's Home, Dumb and Dumber 2. It all springs from one thing. Yeah, so I found this guy, Riza Aziz, who's a co-founder of Red Granite Pictures. So Red Granite Pictures, they were formed in like 2010. And uh, they made um, you know, the movie Friends with Kids with Adam Scott and John Hamm and uh, Out of the Furnace, which I'd never heard of, but uh, yeah. with Christian Bale, Woody Harrelson, and, and then Wolf of Wall Street. And uh, so they were kind of like this 
pretty legit production company making some Hollywood movies, making some profitable movies, and Wolf of Wall Street being a big one. And like Variety put, you know, Riza Aziz as one of their top 10 producers to watch. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, like I read the article and he's like all full of himself, you know, he goes like, <laughs> you know, we're investor savvy and know how to make movies the right way. And that's what made Leonardo DiCaprio believe in us. What he didn't say was that he's the stepson of uh, Malaysia's prime minister at the time, a man named Najib Razak, who mm. it was since revealed embezzled about four and a half billion dollars <laughs> from like the, the Malaysian development funds. Yeah. In, into all sorts of business accounts, including about a quarter of a billion dollars, billion with a B, quarter of a billion, to <laughs> Red Granite Pictures. So, so like $155 million alone of this embezzled money went into Wolf of Wall Street. It was really like all of these movies, including Wolf of Wall Street, were just huge money laundering schemes. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and then after Wolf of Wall Street, they went on, again, as you said, to make Daddy's Home Dumb and Dumber 2 and everything. You know, he said, that's what made Leonardo DiCaprio believe in us. Also, like, they gave Leonardo DiCaprio, like, a Picasso painting and, like, $10 million artworks and Marlon Brando's Oscar. They're just, like, handing him things. Hey, hang on <laughs> to this took for it me. From Marlon Brando's grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Leo, glad you're working with us. Can you hang on to this for me? Great, thanks. <laughs> and he's like, great, I love these guys. <laughs> so, like, when this came out, all of that had to be seized back. Like, the, the yeah. federal government went to DiCaprio's house and they're pulling out all this art, <laughs> all this, like, stolen art from his home. And there's, like, diamonds and yeah, Brando's Oscar. And at a time, they were the federal government was also like looking to seize just the rights to these movies entirely to like try and return to the Malaysian government. <laughs> so there was, you know, it was like Dumb and Dumber Two was almost like a Malaysian government asset. But then they, then they, they were they wanted to start a streaming service, yeah. <laughs> Malaysia Plus, <laughs> just five movies. <laughs> the Red Granite. Pictures is still a company, still in business. They've paid a fine. Riza Aziz is no longer, I think, involved operationally. And, like, this isn't over, by the way. Like, he's going to trial, and it starts this month. The international economy, it's amazing. And, and one yeah. reason is that you can do a crime in Malaysia and then try to launder it by making, like, an Oscar-winning film with Martin Scorsese. <laughs> uh, really great, you know? Yeah. It's wild. If, if the producers just <laughs> one day that anything, One day those Oscars yeah. will be given to someone else <laughs> yeah. as part of them. <laughs> yeah. Like, these movies were too successful, you know? They needed to yeah. throw them into losers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was just, like, nuts. Because, like, I, I saw the, you know, the headline about, like, these movies are actually Malaysian money laundering schemes. And I was like, okay, what's the real story? And then that was the story. It's just that. Yeah, it's just the kind of thing where they stole some money and then they were like, in order to launder it, I will fund a movie and make money off the movie. Maybe that was a good investing decision. Like maybe that maybe that was a smart use of their laundered money, like rather than stocks or something. Make a make a hit Hollywood movie with He's a hero? People. Well <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? Alex? <laughs> the funny thing is how this I'm in on it. I'm, I'm getting money. It's it's fine. This company's still in business. They just paid back the money. But now they're like still in business because they were hit movies. And that yeah. seems nuts to me that you can just go like, oh sorry, here's exactly what we took. Uh, and we're good now. We're going to keep making movies. 
Yeah, as I understand it, that's how white collar crime works. Yeah. This is kind of it, which is crazy. Like you said, they seized a bunch of assets, including uh, Picasso, a close to $10 million Basquiat. That is such a weird gift to me that they said, hey, Leo, we have a gift for you. It's an Oscar that Marlon Brando won. <laughs> like, I, would, would you, I wouldn't want somebody yeah, else's award well, that bad. And we got you a label maker, and you can do whatever you want with this. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that time, Leonardo DiCaprio had not won an Oscar. So that must have been an insult, really, to him. Yeah, was The Revenant? The Revenant first? was after. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that stinks, then. Yeah, that's <laughs> not a good gift. Hey, this is something won by a real actor. You want it? <laughs> Just, yeah, just label makers it for, like, the beach. Now I won. <laughs> Great. The weird thing is it makes me question what Leonardo DiCaprio's life is like because he got these extravagant gifts and asked no questions. So are people just constantly giving him Picassos and Basquiat's and Oscars? <laughs> and he's like, I just, I don't, I didn't even really think twice about this. Yeah. yeah. Put it with the other ones. Yeah, um. that does kind of make sense because it does feel like... If someone gave me something that nice, I'd be like, what's going on here? <laughs> what are they trying to get from me? <laughs> yeah, I, I do that with much smaller gifts. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't accept gifts from my parents. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> and even then, all of these various crimes that, like we said, it's an active legal proceeding in Malaysia. It's still going on, but it led to headlines such as, feds look to seize dumb and dumber to rights. Because uh, they were like, the U.S. federal government was like, we are taking this to give it back to Malaysia. Because it was an ill-gotten gay and the sequel to Dumb and Dumber. So it's going to go. You're welcome. We, we got you the rights to Dumb and Dumber too. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Gonzalo Cordova and Alan Denton for, for digging so far into the uh, the rabbit hole of these specific stages of movie production where people did something that is very humorous to think about once you fixate on it. And in our footnotes, you will find evidence of all those elaborate efforts by people to, to make entertainments like Cats happen and then get updated after it was in theaters uh, and so much more. I particularly recommend the links about the Malaysian money laundering scheme and how it gave us all several major Hollywood movies. Again, that is an active legal proceeding in Malaysia, and uh, the links there will actually tell you the very latest on that case if anything new has happened, because it's supposed to go to trial basically as we were taping. And so there might be more there. I'm excited to find out with you. I also hope you will follow our guests on this episode. They are both uh, very funny people, so they have very funny Twitter accounts, among many things. Gonzalo Cordova is at Gonzalo R. Cordova on Twitter. And then Alan Denton is at Alan the Writer. So you can find both of them, uh, I think, very easily. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Annette Ronhell at Western Sound in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, California, and edited by Chris Souza in beautiful undisclosed location. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where everyone will just decide that Sonic the Hedgehog or McCavity the, the Creepy Cat is designed wrong and needs to be different. And then they do it because we're in a, a crazy, just futuristic world, man. It's science fiction. We're just keeping up. 
Anyway, my own Twitter account, it's very grounded. It's mostly posts about Snoopy, and it is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzgram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. <laughs>